The Tower, Episode 13. On today's episode of The Tower, we'll take a break from an issue review to talk Titans news, a look at the 1967 Teen Titans cartoon, an examination of the new Teen Titans Volume 1 trade paperback, and a little bit more on today's episode of The Tower. Welcome to The Tower. This is your host, Peter Rios. News time. If you don't know, the new maxi-series Titans Hunt, issue 1 of 12, is in this month's previews for pre-order. It's written by Dan Abnett with art by Paolo Sicchietta. This is spinning out of Convergence and is being billed as the secret history of the Teen Titans. We have most of the original Fab Five, Dick Grayson, Donna Troy, Garth, Roy. Uh, Others pictured on the cover are Mal, Mal Duncan, Nark, and Lilith. And in the solicit is Hank and Dawn, not Don, Granger, which is Hawk and Dove. And then on the cover, there are a group of Titans and JLA members standing over a grave site that has an epitaph of Here Lies the Forgotten Titan. Now, is that Wally? I don't know how it could be. I don't know. Maybe there's a new fifth member of the Fabulous Five that will replace Wally West. And maybe that's what the big secret is. I guess we'll find out. So issue one is available to pre-order this month, which can also be just you going to your local comic shop and saying, hey, sign me up for this title. By the way, the cover for the second issue has been released, and it very much features Dick Grayson in his Grayson super spy uniform. So it's definitely set in the here and now. I'm going to go ahead and get this maxi-series from my local comic shop month to month instead of pre-ordering from DCBS. So that way I don't have to wait for my shipment to actually talk about the book. I'll be able to be a little more timely with the discussion and it'll help me review a more current Titan series, which should prove interesting considering how far behind I am on the new 52 titles. The new weekly series Batman and Robin Eternal is also in this month's previews, the first four issues, which will have a heavy focus on the Batman sidekicks. Now, next up, Titans on TNT, the Titans live-action series that's supposed to be on TNT. I haven't seen any new information. I don't even think there's been any real movement in terms of new development in the past couple of months. At this point, will we even see it? Will we even see this in 2016? So the last bit of speculation was that it would be titled Blackbirds, I guess. I mean, if you think of all the bird-related characters, I guess that makes sense, but it's not very interesting, uh, you know, because you're supposed to have Nightwing, Raven, Hawk and Dove, and then Barbara Gordon and Starfire. I'm not really holding out on this until I see some real credible information. I'm not one to really follow news like this, like casting news or developments, because I like to have some sense of surprise 
But I guess since this is a Titans podcast, I have a duty. I have a duty to you all to at least give you a heads up. And if I hear anything, I will let you know. I mean, it's not like we're not all inundated with geek news everywhere these days, right? So chances are you might hear it before I do. Lastly, and not necessarily news, uh, but because there wasn't really a lot that I could find that was newsworthy, I thought, um, here's a little bit little bit of Titans history announcement, if you don't know. New Teen Titans will celebrate its 35th anniversary in October of 2015. I don't really expect anything to come out of it, um, especially because now we have at least three softcover trades out or soon to be out. So that's all I've been waiting for since this pod- podcast began back in 2009. So, and 35th anniversary, you know, I like celebrating 25. I like celebrating 50. Uh, you know, what's 35? So that's it. That's all the Titans news for this episode. Here come the Teen Titans, a quartet of towering talents. Kid Flash, whose speed defies the eye to follow. Wonder Girl, swift and powerful super lass. Speedy, whose fantastic arrows perform awesome feats. Aqualad, bold and daring marine marvel. Fabulous foursome for right against might. The Teen Titans. So I've been making it a point to try and watch every bit of comic book animation that I can find, especially with DC characters, and in order. Starting with the 1966 New Adventures of Superman cartoon, which has not been easy to find, some of the stuff is on YouTube. And I'm doing this because I want to see how the cartoon universe has evolved And also because there's a lot of stuff that I haven't seen, and that's just ridiculous. So I've been jumping around here and there, and I saw some early JLA episodes, uh, some of those new Adventures of Superman episodes, but I stalled out for a little bit. However, I did see all three Teen Titans cartoons from 1967. All of this is filmation, and the three episodes were, were part of the Superman Aquaman Hour of Adventure. Um, they were all written by or scripted by George Cashton, which makes sense. He was the editor that was there when the Titans first appeared in those Brave and Bold issues and Showcase, and he also edited the first 17 issues of Teen Titans Volume 1. So if you have to have someone write the cartoon, I guess it makes sense that it should be George Cashton. I mean, he's very much part of the Teen Titans creative um, origin story. By the way, he also was the co-creator of Tommy Tomorrow, which is a property that I love. I love all of DC's sci-fi mystery stuff from like the 50s, 60s. So he co-created Tommy Tomorrow with Jack Schiff, uh, Bernie Breslauer, Virgil, Virgil Finlay, and Howard Sherman. So the Teen Titans cartoon, this crazy Teen Titans cartoon, as all the Filmation cartoons were, you had Aqualad, Kid Flash, Speedy, and Wonder Girl. You didn't have Robin for either because he was in the other, probably was in a Batman cartoon or soon to be in a Batman cartoon. Um, Aqualad was voiced by Jerry Dexter. Kid Flash was voiced by Tommy Cook. Speedy was voiced by Pat Harrington Jr. And Wonder Girl was voiced by Julie Bennett. 
most of those voice actors worked elsewhere. In fact, I think Jerry Dexter was Sunfire in Amazing uh, Spider-Man and, and His Amazing Friends. And I think uh, Julie Bennett was Aunt May in one of the later Spider-Man cartoons as well. So the three cartoons are titled The Monster Machine, The Space, the Space Beast Roundup, and Operation Rescue. In other words, they all had to do with aliens. Because it was the late 60s, I guess. I don't know. Now, um, these cartoons are no more than six or seven minutes long. They're very quaint. They're very raw. They're very silly. And I guess that's all you needed to capture kids' imaginations back in the day, right? I enjoyed them. I'm not going to say I didn't like them. I, you know, it's 1967 when you're trying to pump out content uh, for an audience for mass appeal, not necessarily for art. This wasn't necessarily, I can't imagine they were creating these for craft, right? I get it. I get it. So I'm not looking at these with a real critical eye, um, but, uh, you know, there were some fun things to be had in them. So the first one, the Monster Machine it's basically an unmanned spaceship uh, unleashes multi-armed robots to attack the Earth for no reason but just because. And the Titans are in a secret mountain headquarters. There's Again, there's no real explanation of why the invaders are doing what they're doing. Um, and the Titans just go and save the day. Now, the quirky thing about these cartoons is the way some of the Titans use their powers. For instance, Kid Flash acts like a battering ram a lot. So he's running at full speed and crashing into these robots, and you want to say that's probably not smart, but that's what he does. Um, I don't believe he can run on water just yet either, and I'm not sure if that's something that he can do even in the books at this time. But he's riding in a copter at one point, point, and Speedy says, you know, I'll land the copter so you can run. What these cartoons are great at capturing, though, are all the nicknames. We have Speedy Boy and Wonder Doll and Gilhead. In the second episode, we have uh, Flasheroo and Speedio and Davy Jones and Robin Hood. And they also do the exclamations, right? You have uh, Great Godiva, Soaring Sailfish, Merciful Minerva, Suffering Sappho, Racing Rockets, Leaping Lampreys, Twinkle Toes. Oh, there's a, another nickname. Um, and also Bouncing Blowfish. Ah, oh, there's so much fun. In the second episode, Speedy fires an arrow that creates a line for Flash to run in over the water. So that's another example of... Was that a thing? Could Barry Allen run on water at this point? Was it shown in comics just yet? I don't know. So the second episode, the Titans have to round up all these uh, alien beasts that some aliens just jettisoned out of their spacecraft because their ship was too heavy. That's it. Um, one of the creatures actually looks like it could be a prototype for the Cloverfield monster, which is pretty hysterical. So... When the Titans arrive, Wonder Girl sees one of them and just faints. I think. Because she just falls over. So you're kind of like, what? What just happened? 
And then the third one is a scientist and his son must be rescued from an alien tribe high in the mountains. And the father and son had a very Johnny Quest kind of feel. Um, there's a new copter. It looks a little different from the first two episodes. Uh, we see Flash vibrate through a wall, which is kind of cool. Um, and the cartoons are just, you know, they're edited crazy. There's weird use of powers. Um, Speedy talks really fast. And I have to assume that that's, uh, that's because of his name. And I wondered if that's even a comic book thing. I have not read any, I think, Speedy Adventures when he was Green Arrow's sidekick. So I don't know if that was a thing. Did he just talk really fast? But they certainly did it in the episode. In fact, what I'll do throughout this episode between the segments, I'll, I'll put in some clips from some of these cartoons just so you can hear some of the stuff yourself. So as I said, they're fun, they're silly, uh, you can watch them on YouTube if you have, you know, 30 minutes, you can watch all three of them. There are also uh, Kid Flash appearances in the Flash cartoons of this same time, the second and third episode, and the third episode features an alien being called Blue Bolt, and he's a speedster, but he has the tops powers because he can spin really fast, and he's hilariously voiced by Ted Knight. I love it, I love it. And Kid Flash, his costume is inverted almost. Uh, no, actually it is. His red legs in the comics are replaced with yellow, and his yellow tunic in the comics is replaced with red. I don't know why they did that. Maybe yellow, I don't know, maybe it was too expensive or just didn't look right against the other heroes since all of them are based in red as well. But, uh, ah, the Teen Titans cartoon. It's fun. It's fun and silly. Go and watch. Speedy to Titans. Come in, Teen Titans. Aqualad here. Wonder Girl here. Kid Flash here. What's up, Speedy-o? Condition red. Rendezvous sector C for Charlie. Baker beat on the D for double. Be there in a flash. Roger. We'll go. A short while later. Next up, as I promised, uh, I pulled out the new Teen Titans Volume 1 softcover trade. And I went through issue by issue with my issues 1 through 8, as well as the 16-page preview from DC Comics Presents, issue 26. Now, this is something I will do issue by issue rather than with one whole trade. Um, so, for example, when I do issue 9, which may not be for another episode or two, I'll also go to the trade and see if there's any you know, just compare them and see what they see what the trade did, if it restored anything or changed anything. What I found by looking at volume one is that they were very, very faithful to everything. Um, the color was reproduced and recreated by Tom McCraw, and he really did go out of his way to recreate. There isn't much that's different. Um, sound effects are colored the same, backgrounds are colored the same, some of those crazy costume coloring, uh, for instance, like Terry Long in his powder blue suit, and uh, Donna Troy's co-worker in his pink outfit, all that's the same. If anything, it kind of punches up the brightness of what the color um, technique was in the early 80s. 
obviously because of limitations or whatever. Now, the only time they tweaked and kind of modeled certain characters and, and you know, modeled skin tones and put some highlights on costuming was for the cover of the trade, the cover to New Teen Titans issue one. They wanted to punch it up a little bit, but even that is not changed all that much. Uh, they did lighten Cyborg's skin on the cover, which was kind of weird. They didn't do it in the ish, in the um, in the actual content, but they did it on the cover. Um, so I thought that was great. I actually thought that was great that they did not try to put modern coloring onto comic book art that is, you know, very much of its time. As good as it is, it's still early 80s artwork in terms of um, development, right? Paris was just developing. So that flat coloring, he is he is drawing because he knows that the coloring is what it is. Just like if um, the way he draws today is probably different because he knows co coloring is more modern. So that was great. I thought that was great. It made everything match up, and I thought it was respectful to Adrian Roy and what she did. I think it's a little weird that they don't title these volumes. It's just New Teen Titans Volume 1. There's no there's no secondary title. And is that because back then there are, you know, there was nothing like a story arc being titled, you know, like for instance you get to Judas Contract, well you could call a trade The Judas Contract. But what do you call this? What do you call the first 8 issues? Now, in issue one, the chapter one, it was called The Birth of the Teen Titans. I'm sorry, The Birth of the Titans. I don't know. Do you want the word birth on a trade? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't see. There's nothing wrong with that. So it could have been called Volume One, Birth of the Titans. The second volume doesn't have a title as far as I know, and I'm fairly certain the third one doesn't either. So they're just going by volumes on this, which, yeah, that's kind of cool. Examining all the issues, issue by issue, you start to see how inking Perez can be a challenge. So you have DC Comics Presents, the 16-page preview from issue 26, and it's ink inked by Dick Giordano. And he is just too heavy of an inker for Perez. The ink lines are so thick, it almost makes it feel like however they, you know, the printing press stayed on the page too long and all of that black ink started to just fill out and bleed and it it comes across a little muddy at times and when you compare it with the preview in the actual comic it's it's the same way but now you have this new sharpness the trade the paper quality of the trade gives everything a new sharp a new clarity so those thick lines, boy, do they stand out and not necessarily in a good way. The only change I could find in that preview uh, reproduction was when they first enter the tower, uh, they're in the meeting hall and along the one wall are all the portraits of the portraits of the Teen Titans and the paneling behind the portraits in the original issue is kind of yellowish and in the trade, it's a wood color, which is more consistent with how it would be drawn later. So maybe that's why they did that. Or maybe they just wanted the portraits to stand out a little more. But that really was the only change I could find. Major change. In issue one's reproduction, 
there's one small, tiny little change. Um, Changeling jumps into Donna Troy's arms, and the special effect of her reaction in the original issue is a, a little pinkish, and in this issue, it's a little more yellow-orangish. What you see in this first issue, though, is how Romeo Tangho, how his inks are, are definitely more complementary to George Perez. They're thinner, they're sharper. It's not as blocky as what Giordano did. It's smoother in its quality. Some of that is also the reproduction. Things are so sharp. When you look at the first issue as a comic, granted, my version is, you know, my copy is almost 35 years old. Um, some of the background coloring gets broken up, whether that was because of the printing process or age, I don't know. But with the trade, some of that stuff is really flat, and it helps to really push the foreground imagery closer to the reader's eye. And maybe it might look a little jarring if you're not used to looking at that kind of artwork. But for me, I thought, wow, look how clean this is. Look how clear it is. I can see all the detail in spaceships and technology. And when there is, you know, when there's just a lot of stuff in one panel, in my copy, it's blurry and old. You know, it's getting a little blurry. It's getting a little older. But in this, it's bam. You can see everything, which is really great. I did have to laugh. So we get to issue two in the trade. And you have the cover on one side featuring the first appearance of Ravager and Deathstroke. And you have issue one on the uh, second side, on the other side. So, you know, open it up and they're side by side. So on the cover of issue two, Deathstroke is in the background. He's kind of half in the shadows. And his gloves are colored blue, which is a miscoloring. So they have the cover. And then on the first page is Deathstroke. We see the back of him talking to Hive members. Clearly his gloves and boots are orange. So you would think, why wouldn't they fix that on the cover for the trade? But they didn't. They left the mistake in as if to say, hey... That was part of history. You know, I kind of have to applaud him and say, all right, because you had to have seen it. You had to have gone, oh, yeah, that's a mistake. But you know what? We'll keep it. I don't know. It's, it's pretty funny when you see it side by side. Let's see. Issue three in the trade uh, on page 93. Um, Trigon has an image of the earth in his hands and in the trade where the continents are, they took out the blue, the, I'm sorry, the green coloring, and it's now all blue. So you can't tell the water from the continents. So that's a little bit of a mistake. In issue four in the trade, uh, I think it's page 122, the Titans and the JLA are fighting, and, the, and Green Lantern has a construct of this large cylinder that he plops down over some, uh, probably the Titans, or I forget who. And the construct in the trade is not green. It's kind of like a gray color. So that's kind of a mistake there. When we get to issue six, Perez is back on the art and Pablo Marcos is the inker. And I like Pablo, Pablo Marcos's artwork. I really, I mean, his inking, I do. It's smoother. Um, it's a little more fluid. It's a little more rollier. Like it, it just kind of rolls over Perez's art line work. It, it makes characters rounder. Um, I know he does the annual that first features Vigilante, and it has that same kind of feel. So is he a good 
inker for Perez? Probably not because he puts a little bit of his own style to it. Um, but there's something I like about that issue six, especially when you see it reproduced like this on this clear, um, clear page work, right? And the other thing that's really great about issue six, the coloring on Trigon is wonderful. He's this deep devil red, as opposed to the issues where the red gets kind of faded. It's kind of like when you see the Baxter run and you see Trigon for the first time and he's this raw muscle tone red. And in this reproduction, it's there's no mistake, he is a devil. So I really like that. Now, jumping back to issue five, which was uh, guest artist uh, Kurt Swan, I kind of, when I was getting to that page for the first time, I kind of thought, wouldn't it have been awesome if you opened it up and it said, hey, Perez decided to draw the whole thing. He decided to redo because he missed it way back when. Now, I don't mean that as a slight to Kurt Swan. In fact, I think that Kurt Swan and Romeo Tangle did a great job of keeping within the style of Perez. Kurt Swan's panels are usually bigger. Um, he's not, uh, he's, you know, Perez likes a lot of panels on a page and, and a lot of detail. And, and Kurt Swan is open. He's more open. So there's that difference. But otherwise, you know, you sort of look at it and go, yeah, that's not a bad transition. You can see the transition, but it's not so shocking. In fact, what the trade does really well for this issue is when you flip between pages 137 and 138, you get a page-turn reveal of Trigon. Now, we've seen him before. We've seen him, Perez drew him earlier. But in this issue, he it's there he is in a giant splash page. In the comic, it those two pages are side by side. In the trade, it's a nice little flip, and I think that's a good, that's a better way, a better flow for that scene. So, yeah, I might have wanted, I, I don't know, I just think it would be interesting to see what Perez would do if he could redraw that issue, how he would have made it a little bit differently. So that was one thing that, that was just a thought that stood out. And then in the back of the trade, they have all the pinups of the Titans. Robin, Wonder Girl, and Kid Flash are from annual number one. And then Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, and Changeling are from the individual issues of the miniseries Tales of the New Teen Titans, which explored those four characters' origins. That miniseries... Now, since this trade only collects up to issue eight, the miniseries really didn't come out until around, I think, like 17, 18, or issue 19, somewhere around there, or maybe even later. So it's kind of jumping the gun in terms of chronological content, but it's nice to have all those pinups by Perez because they look beautiful. The other thing the trade has is an introduction by Marv Wolfman, written all the way back in 1998, I think it said. So I don't know what trade that was, if there was a trade, or where that introduction is coming from, but it's not current at all. Not like any of that information was going to change, not like he was really going to add anything new, but, you know, there it is. So there you go. It's worth getting the trade because it is as close to a reproduction as you're going to get. It includes all the covers, which is great. I'm doing a breakdown of uh, the uh, Morning the Morning Glories image series over on the Daily Rios. Every Monday I'm putting out a discussion about a collection of issues. 
And I have the first trade of Morning Glories, and then I have all the issues. But the trade of that does not include the covers. So you almost can't tell where where an issue ends. I don't necessarily like that. I like knowing, you know, what the issue was because um, because that's how they were written, you know. So the tr- New Teen Titans trade has the covers, has an intro, has pinups, and um, it's worth getting. It's, it really is worth getting. So if you're reading along or you want to read along, by all means, you should pick it up. Where are the others, Speedy? Heading for the big roundup, Aqualad! Wonder Girl streaking through the wild blue, and Kid Flash is zipping over hill and dale. Okay, pour it on, Speedy-O. We've got to get to where the action is. Check! All right, lastly here, we have some feedback and follow-up to the last two episodes. Last episode, I talked about the first appearance of the Omega Man in Green Lantern 141, which was wrapped up in a cover by George Perez. Well, apparently, and I don't know if I stumbled onto this or someone pointed it out to me, so I apologize if someone did, but there's an alternate cover that I found online by, uh, speaking of, by Dick Giordano. I will post a link in the show notes. It is from an art gallery, an art dealer, I should say. It's priced at $1,800. Wow. And it features Green Lantern swooping in to save Carol Ferris with a shield construct um, as a sheriff uh, holds a shotgun like he's going to shoot, or maybe he does take a shot. And then in the background is this old lady looking on. Now, it's not terribly far off from what actually happens within the issue. Because that's a scene where the Omega Men are trying to scare off Green Lantern um, by being law enforcement. Basically, they're in disguise. But it's not very dramatic as a cover. Well, it's dramatic. It's just not... I don't know. If you're, if you're trying to sell readers on your new concept, especially this very sci-fi concept, I think you would want a little more. So I would love to know the backstory of this. I, maybe Wolfman saw it and said, yeah... That's not going to cut it. So he goes out and uh, hires George Perez to do the next three covers, in fact. So that's a little bit of art history that was fun to come across. In the feedback from last episode, Eric asked why I thought of the Omega Men as part of the larger Titans universe. And I explained why. And I also mentioned that Vigilante was part of it, in my mind, and also Night Force. But I forgot to mention why. And that's because Night Force uh, first premiered in the Titans as a preview, 16-page preview. Just like Titans first appeared in DC Comics Presents issue 26, Night Force first appeared in New Teen Titans. It was written by Marv Wolfman, so it makes sense. And I remember reading somewhere that George Perez was kind of pissed because, because the Titans were so popular, they would constantly dump in all these 16-page previews. They put in a Captain Carrot one in issue 16, I think it is. They put Night Force. They also put uh, Masters of the Universe, but that was something that was being done across the entire line. So so that's the reason. That's the reason why I think of Night Force as part of the Titans universe. That's a that's a, an iffy correlation there, but, you know, whatever. All right, we have um, just a a little feedback here. Murray says, talking about Dick and Corey's scene in bed in New Teen Titans Volume 2, Number 1, got me thinking. This wasn't the first time we saw them in bed. 
there was a subtler scene in the original New Teen Titans run, but I can't remember which issue. I know that it didn't make any impression on me at the time. It was only later that I realized what was going on. Something to look for when you do your reread for the podcast. Yeah, I can't recall that either, so thanks for the heads up. I will definitely keep a look for that. From Mervyn, who described himself as a silent listener for CGS and The Tower and now The Daily Reels, which was awesome, so thanks for writing, Mervyn. He says, My love for the comic books really began with The New Teen Titans, issue 23, the beginning of the Starfire Blackfire saga. When looking back on those stories, I found that the breathier or character-focused stories, like A Day in the Lives, to be where Marv's and George's writing really shine. In the podcast, you express some dismay at Cyborg's scene with Marcy in issue 8. Looking back at it, I think that the Cyborg section is the most true to life and would not feel out of place in any period. Let me explain. First, We think of Cyborg as a superhero because of the cybernetic parts that saved his life. Victor's story, as told by Wolfman, is about dealing with and overcoming being disabled. Yes, Cyborg is disabled. Without the mechanical parts, Vic is bedridden, without arms and legs, and missing part of his face. His dream was either the Olympics or the NFL as a star. The accident cost him that dream. From his introduction, Cyborg goes through the stages of grief until his father dies, While that grief doesn't go away, Vic's story becomes more about him reconciling the man and the machine. Which brings me to Marcy's comment, I wish you were dead. Now, Marcy's Victor is a strong Olympic-level athlete on the verge of becoming a star. That Victor is no more. But this Victor is a chrome-plated other. With a dead body, she has something to mourn. A cyborg Victor creates a problem. How do you mourn a dead past when the person is not actually dead? How do you relate this person when the person you knew is gone? Unable to deal with the situation, she and her family cut Cyborg from their lives as if he is dead. Cyborg comes to her while he's dealing with his grieving process. As his visit forces her issues, Marcy blurts out something that she both does and doesn't mean. While reading it as an adult, I understood her conflict and thought that Marv's writing here was on point. If you talk to disabled veterans, you might hear that two of their struggles are their new disability and the disappearance of old friends. While not as immediate as the one who is disabled, these friends, significant others, and family members also go through the grieving process. As hard as it is to say, a dead body makes grieving easier. If they survived without a body part or the ability to walk or see or hear, people have trouble reconciling the person they knew with the person before them. They feel bad for feeling bad. Instead of going through the process with their friend, significant other, or family member, they relieve their guilt by separating themselves. They stop showing up, don't return calls or messages. Like Marcy, they are not bad people, but they just can't deal with the situation. When comforted, they say something hurtful that they both do and don't mean. The appearance of Sarah Sims and the kids provides the other side. One of the best ways of overcoming depression is by helping others. While working on the Titans is a help, those disabled kids are the balm to Victor's depression. They don't see him as he was, but as he is. They think he is awesome because he is like them, only with better prosthetics. They can cut through those depressive thoughts that Cyborg attempts to tell himself. 
I am glad Marv listened to that letter and allowed Vic and Sarah to be good friends because those kids were equally as important to Cyborg's development as a character. He finishes by saying, I have other thoughts on how Marv and George developed these Titans, starting with issue 8. However, I would completely bore you if I have not already. Keep up the good work and I will be listening whenever you post them. By all means, Mervin, if you have a thought on an issue that you know I will be talking about, send it in. I might edit it for time in the future, but there's no reason to wait until after I've talked about an issue. Um, for instance, the next issue will be issue number nine, maybe in, a, in another episode or so. It, it's the start of the puppeteer Deathstroke story. And, uh, you know, send in a thought or two. And this goes for anybody. Send in, send in a thought if you know an issue is coming up. I think that's a great way to engage the discussion. I really do like that. Now, to Mervyn's letter, um, he said that I had some dismay about the scene. I think it was more about her comment uh, by saying, you know, I wish you would have been dead or whatever it was she said. Um, it was not that I thought it was a bad comment in terms of writing. I thought I just couldn't imagine myself in front of her and having her say that to me. And it was harsh because... Um, because it was, whether it was intentional or not, that, that, that's a very hard thing. It was a very hard thing to read. I, th I thought it was a great scene. I totally get how that scene led into meeting Sarah Sims and how it was a boon for Cyborg. I talked about how, uh, Cyborg kind of took Marcy's reaction in stride. Yes, he was disappointed and sad, but he wasn't, he didn't go in a rage. He didn't as, you know, it. Up to this point, he was very angry and, you know, with the other issues, especially with his dad. But he just took it and he accepted it because he figured that was his lot in life right now. Um, so he certainly was down and then he met these kids and he was right back up again, which was great. So, yeah, I told everything you say I agree with. And um, I don't remember if I disparaged that scene at all. I don't think I did. Um, but um, it was a. It was a good turning point for Cyborg. And what I said was, I hope that from that scene forward, we start to see Cyborg become the man that I will know by issue 28, which was the first issue I ever read. So great. Thanks, Mervyn. That was a great letter. I really appreciate your thoughts. And finally, another link I'll probably put in the show notes. Rico Renzi, who's a color artist uh, on books such as Spider-Gwen, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and Howard the Duck. And he's also the director of creator endeavor, creative endeavors at heroesonline.com, which is Heroes Are Hard, Aren't Hard to Find, which is the Heroes Con. He put up on Twitter from Charlotte Comic Con this amazing vigilante cosplay. So I'm going to have to link it so you can see it because it was really, really good. I love me some old school Titans uh, cosplay. It's just awesome. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can reach out at peteratthedailyreels.com or you can leave a message on the website. If you hadn't heard before, the Tower podcast will be on a bi-weekly schedule. So next episode will be episode 14. Again, I don't know if I'm going to do an issue breakdown of uh, issue number nine. I might have some other things I might want to talk about. Thanks for listening and we will talk again next time. My son and I owe our life to you, Teen Titans. How can we ever thank you? We're just happy to see you safe together again. Oh, now look, chick. Yeah, 
weeping weak fish. Oh, you, you. Now, Titans, I think we should agree never to reveal the secret of this hidden valley, right? Right. Okay, let's head for home, gang. See you back.